0: Sonia created the Love the Word Bible study method just for you, based on Mary's personal practice and formulated for your personality and temperament. Get your Love the Word meditations every Monday morning by signing up at biblestudyevangelista.com. Now, here's Sonia. If you like having Bible study in your pocket and you have an iPhone or iPad, why not leave a review? Search Bible Study Evangelista in iTunes and tell everyone how you're loving and lifting all you've been given. Here's Sonia.
1: It's episode five of our Therese of LeJoux's Little Way of Childhood series. We've looked at Therese of LeJoux and her childhood trauma, and how God healed her through prayer, and he used her trauma as the basis for her theology, we'll call it, of the little way. And of course, she probably did not have most of this inner child healing and psychology and all of that in mind when she coined that phrase, but that's the jumping off point for us, and we're doing some unpacking of Matthew 18 in the series in order to give us good Rules for Discernment in How to Erect Healthy Boundaries While We Heal, particularly as we seek to rescue that inner child. I had to take a break after that last show because after the three-week Australian tour, I didn't have a chance to recover properly, and I went from one intense travel season to another and then another, and I needed the rest. But I don't like to interrupt a series with a long break like that, and I've never done it before. I was trying to give you some tools to get through the intensity of how the holidays tend to provoke our woundedness, and we're in this close contact with our families, and I kind of felt like I left you hanging after Christmas, but since then I've rethought that assumption. Because every single person that I've spoken to since Christmas and New Year's had either a really strong pop quiz, as I kind of figured most of us would, or something that surprised them and got them thinking deeply about themselves and their past again. And so I realized that the break was providential because now we can look back and process what we've experienced and learned through those experiences and those those pop quizzes perhaps, um, but whatever was going on over the holidays, we can process all of that together. And since then, I have meditated a lot on Matthew 18 because I want to be faithful to the context, to Matthew as the author and the Holy Spirit as the author. And I don't want to force what we're talking about in this idea of the little way on the biblical text. And in some ways, it's probably going to feel that, that way, especially to those like me who are Bible geeks and really want to have a fidelity to the, the text itself. But one of the things that the church fathers often do when they are commentating on the scriptures is that they make use of what's called in the church, the senses of scripture. And there are two senses of scripture, the literal and the spiritual. And then the spiritual sense is subdivided into allegorical, moral, and anagogical. And the the allegorical is sort of understanding the significance of the events, particularly as they relate to Jesus. The moral sense is supposed to lead us to act morally or justly. And the Anagogical sense is a, it comes from the Greek, and ultimately that just means that it leads us to our heavenly home. It leads us to heaven, the eternal significance. There in the Catechism in 118, there's a medieval couplet that summarizes the four senses. It says, The letter speaks of deeds, allegory to faith, the moral how to act, and anagogy, our destiny. So my point is, while we're going to look at the literal sense of the text, because we must, we're also going to look at the spiritual sense. And I believe that Jesus himself, by bookending this teaching with two children, that that's what we're supposed to be doing. Now, (laughs) admittedly, the church fathers, they take certain liberties in the in using that spiritual sense. And of course we are too. So if that bugs you, I'm sorry. It bugs me sometimes when the fathers do it and they get way off in left field. Sometimes it feels that way, but I don't intend to do that. I hope I'm not doing that. Um, but it, This is definitely a spiritual sense when we're talking about the little way of childhood and St. Therese of Lisieux and her childhood trauma and healing the inner child. All of that is the spiritual sense that we're looking at in Matthew 18. And I have really meditated a lot on this chapter because I use it a lot, first of all, in in my one-on-one consultations and teaching people about boundaries. But also because Jesus really seems to be telling us something important by using these, we might say, flesh and blood parables of children. There's a lot packed into those two bookends. So that's what we're doing. A little bit of a qualification there for those of you who may find it a little bit annoying how we're we're looking at the scriptures here. But we are in our fifth episode. The first one, we looked at St. Therese of Lisieux and a little bit of her biography and her background. Then we did the visualization exercise for the inner child. I offered you a a bonus segment for my friends of the show, thank you very much, um, with suggestions for holiday before and after care, which I hope you were able to make use of. We looked at the distressed inner child and a holiday navigation guide. In episode three and then separation anxiety where we looked at trauma bonds and why we experience so much guilt and shame when we're trying to put boundaries in place that somehow we sense and know deeply we need because otherwise we're going to we're killing ourselves and allowing other people to kill us. Interestingly, healing the inner child is actually based on an ancient psychological and mythological idea that the way to full maturity for any person is to find what you lost as a child and regain it. So that recovery of the child revivifies the adult by teaching the adult how to play and wonder again. But Now, as an adult, we have the added maturity and the knowledge of being an adult, and we know a little bit about how to organize ourselves in the world, and we can see how, those of you who have grandchildren, you can sort of see how your grandchildren serve this purpose for you, because the focus with them is on play, and it's not on the responsibility of rearing that child. You're free to just attend to them, and play with them, and wonder with them, And explore with them in ways that you haven't done since you were a child. And it is so wondrous, I hear, (laughs) since I don't have grandchildren yet. But I hear that it is really wondrous because it does draw you back into that childhood. Only now you have the appreciation of your own experience and you're working in that new experience with all that you have learned previously, which I'll get to in a moment is actually a stage of faith. But I've noticed that in later stages of life, if we haven't recovered that lost child in us, if we remain really focused on duty and responsibility and all that stuff, even after those actual responsibilities are absent, saying after our children leave home and they go to school or they get married or whatever, if we're still hanging on to this sense of duty and responsibility as a part of our identity we start to develop debilitating illnesses or circumstances where we physically have to stop. Our bodies either step in for us and just say, you know, I'm done now. If you're not going to stop it, I'll stop it for you. And we're somehow incapacitated. And that's it seems arbitrary sometimes, but ultimately... It's so that we can learn dependence again, and we can detach from this self-sufficiency and independence that is so detrimental to the spiritual life. And that is why Jesus uses these children in Matthew 18 as flesh and blood parables. And he actually does it in response to the disciples who start arguing over who is the greatest in the kingdom. And they don't mean in heaven. They're talking about right now. They're talking about at the time that they're in Jesus's presence, who is the greatest. And some of the fathers tend to say that they have this argument because Jesus sent Peter to go get the, the coin out of the fish's mouth and he paid for his taxes. And somehow they, they, seemed a little bit put out by that and wanted some clarification on who exactly is the top at the top of the pecking order here. And so Jesus brings the first child into the midst of them. And that's where we sort of jumped off on the healing of the inner child, because Jesus places a whole lot of emphasis on this child in teaching them about who is the greatest Now keep that in mind because he goes on to start to talk about people who are Christ followers within the community of believers that deal with erring fellow believers in a way that Jesus is going to outline. Those seem to be highlighted as the greatest in the kingdom. And I find that absolutely fascinating because in two ways. First of all, in the way that we deal with ourselves, in seeing ourselves as wounded children. But then when we start to put healthy boundaries in place, we have to also keep in mind when we're dealing with fellow believers, fellow Christians, that they are also wounded children too. And we have to take very careful care of both them and ourselves in deciding these specifics of when and how we're going to quote correct an erring brother or sister in christ and the main idea here seems to be that whenever you put boundaries in place we have to keep in mind that they are wounded children and so are we that has to be the guiding principle You are listening to the Sacred Healing 1230 podcast because love heals. Aren't you tired of all the ugliness on social media? You need a faith community that nurtures you and helps you heal. Visit BibleStudyEvangelista.com and click community on the menu, or scroll down to the radio notes and click the link to the Sacred Healing 1230 community. You'll find monthly coaching calls for one-on-one consultation and masterclass participants, live healing prayer streams, a monthly Bible study, prayer intentions and intercessions, love the word takeaways from the daily readings, and poignant shares of our victories and struggles. We're waiting for you. Are you coming?
0: Did you know you can get Bible study evangelista radio notes and podcasts delivered to your inbox every Monday morning? Redeem Your Mondays. Join thousands of your fellow listeners by subscribing at biblestudyevangelista.com. Now, here's Sonia.
1: When we are dealing with Christian brothers and sisters who have offended us, we have to keep in mind that they are acting out of their woundedness, and we are reacting out of our woundedness. And all of that is why Jesus says elsewhere in Matthew, in chapter 7 specifically, that we have to take the beam out of our own eye before we can see clearly to the speck in the brother's eye. So we have to work at inner healing ourselves. We have to cooperate with the Holy Spirit in all of the ways that I have taught you over my time with you and your time with me, all of those ways, we must cooperate with the Holy Spirit in our own healing in order that we can see them clearly and we can treat them with meekness. More on that in a, in a few minutes so that we don't hurt them further. And yet, we are still required to put good boundaries in place, both for our own healing and theirs. Because when the inner child is recovered, then we, he, she, finally gets to express himself or herself from a place of safety rather than fear and danger. This is largely why we need to seek to rescue those bits of ourselves that we dislike. Sometimes those are called shadow parts because they're often really, really young. And I, I'm using the term shadow parts because that's it's an accepted and widely used psychological term for acknowledging disowned or unconscious negative emotions and judgments. And most of us, we instinctively understand what we're talking about when we say shadow parts and that we're not talking about literal evil spirits. But we have to be careful how we understand from certain psychological and spiritual camps, how they use the word shadow and how they propose that we deal with the shadow parts of ourselves. Because if we're talking about embracing our shadows as acknowledging those disowned or unconscious negative emotions and judgments, then yes, we want to do that. But we can't pet them so that they rule us from the conscious side either. And the shadow is not to be embraced if it's understood as its own spirit or something like that. So, I have found that shadow terminology kind of difficult because, on one hand, we know what shadow means instinctively, but on the other, it's used in dangerous ways sometimes. So, we have to be careful. But I'm using it because it's widely used. And those of you who tried the little way visualization technique and you were repulsed by the child you encountered, that's an indication of a shadow part that you have disowned and that needs to be rescued. And that disgust acts to protect the wounded part the wounded child from further hurt and sometimes there's anger sometimes perfectionism control pleasing physical symptoms all of these are coping mechanisms that all act to protect the child from further attention until and unless that attention is kind and nurturing and understanding so spiritually and emotionally and psychologically this is fascinating the reason we remember the past is not to make an objective record of the past. This is why sometimes people say that our memories are relative. The reason we remember the past is so we can use the information that we gathered from the past to prepare us for the future and how to act in similar situations in the future. In the future, We have to see this as sort of like procedural memory for the brain. It's like riding a bicycle where 20 years later, you haven't ridden a bicycle in 20 years, you pick it up 20 years later and you jump right on and you take off. Very little readjustment there. It's the same way for the brain. So we remember things in our brains so that we can react faster and more efficiently the next time something like that comes up. That's the reason it's like a knee-jerk reaction. You just react because your brain has been wired in that way. So all of us have memories like that. They're painful, even years after the original event. And that pain shows us that there's a need for healing and integration or a bringing back, a rescuing of the hurt part and the coping parts. And this pain causes inner conflicts that most of us never even consciously evaluate until they become so painful and so troublesome and so bothersome and destructive that we start to finally start thinking about them. Mine was anger, also some perfectionism, um, all of those sorts of things that in the beginning they serve us well and later on they become tyrants and we just can't stop. And those, of course, often come from those trauma bonds, those attachments to parents that we've spoken about in previous episodes. But we want to be able to evaluate and rescue the inner child so that we don't stay stuck in those childish coping mechanisms and keep behaving childishly and Matthew 18 helps us to navigate those things the memory both the memories and the people who were and may still remain part of those memories and those coping mechanisms they help us to create Matthew 18 sorry helps us to create healthy boundaries so that we have some time and some space to heal and we need that we can't Continue in a difficult, painful relationship in a healthy way, unless we've done healing in this area, because either we will continue to allow hurtful people to hurt us, or we will continue to hurt other people through our hurt and woundedness. Now, as I mentioned earlier, this is certainly not the largest context of the chapter. But it is the best in the scriptures for teaching on boundaries, and it differentiates between Christians and non-Christians, meekness and weakness, doormats, abusers, and authentic charity. Because most of us who grew up in the church were taught to be doormats. We're supposed to just simply accept everything somebody else dishes out in the name of charity. And if we've done that long enough... it. it has almost destroyed us, but it's all process and growth. We don't have to be angry at ourselves or the people through whom the, the offenses and the faults come because we're all children, Jesus says, and he emphasizes this very specifically throughout the text in Matthew 18. There's a Harvard trained Carmelite psychotherapist priest that I know who once said he thought all the saints that he studied were crazy and basically mentally ill. And I'll be honest, I mean, when he said that, I thought, wow, how arrogant. <laughs> but I also recognize that that he's exactly what he meant. It sounds uncompl- uncomplimentary, but it illustrates how far we've come in 2,000 years in understanding mental health and the human psyche. And now that we know how destructive abuse and trauma are and how the brain heals, we Christians particularly— We have better tools to help us understand what authentic charity is and to discern it from pseudo charity or a fear based reaction that we're calling charity that actually just allows people to continue to abuse us and other people. And sometimes that abusive person is us. And Jesus is clear in Matthew 18 that we are accountable for ourselves and one another because we're part of a family. Now, we talked about trauma bonds and parental attachments and how they hang on for decades and decades after we probably should have already grown out of them. And I showed you the catechism in 2779 that says that the purification of our hearts has to do with maternal and paternal images because that that inner child is usually wounded in that context. So detachment is a huge theme. It's a, a theme in the writings of the doctors and the saints on prayer and the spiritual life. And one of the things that they all recommend is fasting as a spiritual discipline. As a spiritual discipline, the church recommends fasting for helping us to detach. And in a sense, Matthew 18 provides for us a sort of instruction on, on fasting from habits and relationships that enslave us to such attachments so that we stop operating on autopilot every time our wound is tweaked. So we started in Matthew 18 with what's called the discourse of church order. But it's kind of a misnomer because there's not even really any mention of the structure of the hierarchy or anything like that. It only talks about relationships in the church. And according to the Catholic Encyclopedia, it says our Lord addresses himself principally to those who were to carry on his work. Mutual relationships of the disciples on earth. This is Christians who follow the ways of, of Jesus and not non-Christians who have a totally different worldview and a totally different set of rules. So, And it's also not those who are Christians in name only. And we can see through the context as we employ the instructions that Jesus gives you, gives us in Matthew 18, who those people are. They become really clear as we start to follow his directions on how to deal with those who hurt us or offend us or, or whatever, so he he begins with a flesh and blood parable. He he draws a child into the midst of them, in answer to their question, "Who is the greatest?" And they're talking about hierarchy. They're talking about ambition right now in in the context of the disciples who are surrounded, who have surrounded Jesus, and he redirects them from some sort of hierarchical structure to the relationships. He says it doesn't even matter because you're all children. And the greatest in heaven are those who can deal with one another as children in ways that have good boundaries and are super gentle. You are listening to the Sacred Healing 1230 Podcast, because
0: love heals.
1: Losing it more often or lost yourself entirely? Binging on food, alcohol, or your phone? Feeling exhausted, anxious, angry, scared? You've done all the novenas, all the consecrations, adoration, daily mass, Bible study, therapy, and deliverance prayers. Why has none of it given you permanent relief? Does God not care? He does care, but you can't feel it because you need to be cherished. You need to be healed. In Sacred Healing 12:30, I teach you how to live authentically from the holiestic love of God and the power of Mark 12:30, heart, soul, mind, and strength. I teach you how to be cherished. I teach you how to guard your peace. I teach you how to love authentically. I teach you how to heal deeply. I teach you how to feel better. Because you can only love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength if they are healing and whole in Him. The love you were made for is only a mouse click away. Go to BibleStudyEvangelista.com to stop the emotional vomit and start experiencing the miracle of living authentically from the healing love of God in your heart, soul, mind, and and body. Depending on your translation, Jesus's response to the disciples who ask him who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. He says, "Unless you are converted and become as little children, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven." Now, it depends, as I said, on your translation. In the NAB, it says unless you turn, and both are accurate because the the word there, either converted or turn, it means to turn back. To convert is, in a sense, to repent or to change direction, to turn back. And that is ultimately the basis on why we're doing this entire series, because we are looking back to the wounded child in us, the inner child in us, as we also look to the wounded inner child in the people with which we deal on a regular basis in our relationships. We have to keep them in mind. First of all, we have to turn back to the inner child within us so that we can establish good boundaries and we can get in touch with that inner child and he or she is not repulsive, not disgusting, we can find that part of us and understand it and hear that part of us, give that part of us, that inner child, what he or she needs and what he or she needed then. And we can make friends with that part and and even reparent that part. That's really what we're almost after is reparenting that inner child in a way that uses all of the adult resources that we know and have learned to this point on behalf of the child that's in us. So we're we're being converted. We're turning back to the inner child in us. Jesus maintains there that greatness in the kingdom of heaven is not measured by rank or power, but by childlikeness. And it deals with the care that we disciples have to take to not cause the little inner child to sin, or to neglect them if they stray, because they will, of course, and how to correct other disciples who sin, because they will, of course, and all with an eye to their inner child and assurance that Jesus will be present with us when we follow his directions, which I find considerably comforting, given some things that happened over my holiday weekend or holiday weeks, and then How forgiveness has to be extended infinitely to those sinful disciples who actually do repent and who at least try, right? I mean, because rarely, rarely does anyone try to turn from a habit of sin and it take the first try. I mean, even like trying to quit smoking, I, I think it's like 10 tries or something. I don't even remember how long it, it takes people to do that. You have to gain some experience and gain some some knowledge about yourself and how to put a strategy in place. And so if we're going to, at least we should, have that kind of charity for ourselves, we can at least offer the same charity to other people, always also keeping in mind that we have been forgiven infinitely. Because a single sin against an infinite God requires an infinite payment, and that's not something any of us can pay. Only Jesus could do that. So every single one of us who has ever sinned owes God an infinite payment that we could never pay, and so he paid it on our behalf, and that is why we are required to forgive infinitely. Now, We'll talk about what that looks like and what it means. And we have in other shows. It's not the toxic forgiveness that many of us in church grew up with. It's it's not. That's the difference in meekness and weakness. But right now I'm just giving you an overview one more time as we sort of delve into the inner child and what Matthew 18 means for us individually. So let's turn our attention to how we see and deal with children. And when I when I say this, I mean generally, as a human race. At our best, how do we see and deal with children? And I am put in mind because of what Jesus says about the straying sheep, when he talks about that, how he says that would I not go after the one that strayed? And if you think about A missing child. What happens to a community when a child is missing? It spares no amount of human resources to find the child. Everybody gathers and tries to help find the child, one way or the other. And we could get lost in the analogy here because children obviously behave childishly, and and that's not what Jesus is talking about. He he is redirecting their prideful ambition. And he's saying, you must become little. Why? Because children trust what they're told. They love their parents unconditionally. They don't do evil. They don't hate. They don't have ambition. They accept correction. They forgive. They forgive. Have you ever seen a child that does not love you unconditionally, even when you have really messed up and hurt them or shocked them? Or neglected them even. I mean, even in the worst case scenario, a child will always continue to love the parent. And that is necessary in order for the parents to continue to hand on their faith to the child. So attachments are not bad. Parental attachments are meant primarily for the passing on of faith and virtue to the child in the domestic church. So attachments are good when we're young. The problem is they persist far longer than they should after we should have already begun the detachment in either adolescence or directly after that, where we start to form our own self-identity. Jesus says in verses 6 through 8 that whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin. So, a couple of things here. This is the child, the inner child and of those who believe in him. So, when we put stumbling blocks in front of a fellow Christian and cause him or her to fall away from the faith, we have committed a very grave error such that. The capital punishment in Judaism was drowning for serious sin, and he says it would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were drowned in the depth of the sea. Woe because of offenses, for offenses must come. We know that living here on earth with one another, all of us are wounded. We know that offenses are going to come, but woe to the one by whom the offense comes. Now, he's talking about literal children here, but he's also talking about being converted, turning back to the inner child. So we should take a look at what causes the inner child to sin. These are people or groups of people or circumstances, certain types of circumstances that call, uh, cause us to fall back into our childish coping mechanisms and behaviors. And so we need to be precise and deadly about eliminating those things, especially in the short term. Now, it may be that this equates to a family relationship or a parental relationship, and the deadly precision might only be required for a short amount of time. That's a matter for discernment, right, between you and the Holy Spirit. But what Jesus is saying here is, Turn back to that inner child and determine what causes the inner child to sin. What are the the patterns in your relationships and your circumstances? What causes the overreaction and the self-medication and the physical symptoms that alert you to a wounded inner child? Do good parents not consider the child's personality and his temperament and the age and development when they're trying to determine consequences for their kids? Do they not take all of that stuff into consideration? Well, good healthy parents do, right? And when we know better, we can do better. But simply reacting is not what Jesus is talking about here. That's exactly what he's warning against. You are likely to respond out of the woundedness of your own inner child to an offense from someone else. This is Pop Quizzes 101, is it not? And so because of that, we have to do the work of turning back to our inner child to rescue him or her, to offer some nurturing and support there so that we can can constructively see the other people around us and deal with them in ways that are good for both them and us. And oftentimes, in fact, always, it requires detachment. Even if it's only temporary, and oftentimes it is, we still have to learn good detachment skills because they're also a stage of development, both in human development and in stages of faith. You are listening to the Sacred Healing 1230 Podcast. Because
0: love heals. If you love having Bible study in your pocket, you can become a friend of the show. Click on the yellow friend of the show button on BibleStudyEvangelista.com and become a supporter of any amount and any frequency. Now, here's Sonya.
1: And what we could call a stage of detachment or a phase is also a stage of faith. James Fowler wrote a book called The Stages of Faith, and he takes a unique human development view of. St- faith specifically. He kind of he kind of pulls faith out as a, a subject, and he studied, he's a, a psychologist who studied faith development. He uses the principles of psychological development, but he, he did a ton of research in faith development, and he shares his findings in his book, and it's pretty academic. But he outlines stage three as this group think or a group identity stage, and this is mostly in adolescence, which is why we talk about peer pressure. And our faith at this point depends on an outside authority who represents a group for her tacit, non-critical, non-reflective faith. It's an unquestioned faith that was handed on to us by our parents, and that's why we don't question it. As I mentioned earlier, this is a good thing. This is how we pass on our faith and our values to our children, which is why we can't leave it to someone else. We have to have a a faith of our own, and and we pass it to our children because this is actually a stage of their development. They need it. So we have, at that stage, our parents' faith, the one that they passed on to us, and we We haven't at this point questioned it. We're part of a group. And so kids need groups, good, healthy faith groups to help nurture the faith that they have been given by you. I hope that sentence structure was terrible, but you know what I mean. And at some point then, we start to question the faith of our group. And it usually begins with a leaving home, a physical leaving of the group at which point we start to be confronted with beliefs that are way different from those that we grew up with. And that, too, is a good thing. It's not necessarily bad. And this is where I love James Fowler's Stages of Faith book because it helps parents... sort of assuage this panic that they have that their kids start to question their faith well they need to and in fact if you can facilitate for that for them while they're living at home and start asking them challenging questions and, pr- and pushing them to explain and defend their faith then you can sort of uh, manage that process while they're under your roof and you can help them navigate the whole stage successfully and fruitfully we did that with our own kids And their questions start to sound militant. Like they're completely rejecting absolutely everything we've ever taught them. And they do. They do. That's kind of, I mean, they're experimenting with it. They haven't actually rejected it. They're trying to make it their own. And so they begin questioning it. We all do this because we start to be confronted with beliefs that are different from the group that we grew up with. And that critical thought causes self-fulfillment and self-identity to take precedence in our faith over a group membership and serving others for the sake of the group. so we start to really focus on our on what we need and what what we uh believe will say and we start to forge our own self identity and we may even burn some bridges, and it feels selfish. And it is some to some degree, but it's necessary. The key to having something nourishing left to come home to is to successfully balance the self-search with the needs of those we truly love and want to keep. And that has to be guided by charity, Jesus says in Matthew 18, for both ourselves and them. And it's a both and, both them and us, rather than the either or thinking of this stage, which is difficult because the... The either or black and white thinking is actually a hallmark of that next stage, stage four in faith development. And in that stage, we start applying logic to the faith that we grew up with. All of this I mentioned on the community in a couple of posts, but we start applying logic to the faith that we grew up with. And that starts to break the symbols that once anchored us. For instance, we might realize that, oh, that's the difference in religion and relationship or religion and spirituality. This is just we may take an anthropology class and realize that every civilization has a particular um, God eating story or myth, and that may shake our faith. And in fact, I, I kind of went through this with my youngest son, who is a huge, well, both of my kids are, but they're huge Tolkien fans. And Tolkien actually went through this himself. He was super learned in archetypes and mythologies of ancient peoples. And the similarities in the archetypes of all pe- peoples and civilizations made him question the truth of those same archetypes in the scriptures. And in fact, Jordan Peterson does something similar with this. And it rocked my oldest son's world. And learning about it in Tolkien rocked my youngest son's world. (laughs) Because when you start to realize that these archetypes, these symbols are common in every religion, in every every civilization, then they start to become just common. See how the symbols break? Oh, is that really the flesh and blood, soul and divinity of Jesus? Or is that just a wafer, right? And we start to question it and it freaks our parents out if we don't know that this is a stage of faith. And it may even freak us out because we feel disloyal. We feel guilty. We feel shamed because we're questioning something that that our parents told us. And of course we can't do that because we love them and trust them, so we feel all this guilt and shame, but it's necessary. This, this self-search and the search for the truth behind the symbols is necessary. What ultimately happened in Tolkien is that he came to understand that although symbols are necessarily incomplete— Especially given the ways that they're passed on to us, sometimes they're incomplete because the the of the ignorance of the people who pass them on to us—our Sunday school teachers, or our CCD teachers, or our priests, or our pastors, or our parents, or whatever—we start to realize that they're symbols, and we we start to suspect them, right? And they seem dangerous and deceptive because we're applying all of this logic to these these symbols, and it starts to feel like a spiritual emotional earthquake, both for ourselves and for the people watching us go through it. Because the structures and the paradigms and the symbols that held us up, that we once accepted completely implicitly, they're sometimes faulty, but they're always incomplete. And so what was presented to us, or the way that we receive them superficially because of the stage we were in at the time, they feel untrue suddenly. And so we may feel betrayed. And those faith symbols start to break when we start to realize, oh, that's just a symbol, right? And so to resolve this inherent instability, we start to reflect on our faith from the outside rather than implicitly accepting it. We're standing on the outside of the faith. We're reflecting on it. We're applying logic to it. And our acceptance is no longer unquestioned. Our authority begins to move from outside to the inner compass. We start to try to decide what is it that I really believe. And because logic rules in this stage, stage 4 we start to impose these really strict categories, either or, black and white, faith and reason, spirit, letter, and everything sort of takes on this flavor of strict rigidity. And if we stay in this stage, and most people do, we're intractable and opinionated and rigid in our faith, and both how we apply it to ourselves and how we apply it to others, we're judgmental, we're critical. Well, if they really believed, they would do it this way, and their faith is fake, and, and I see this all the time online between Protestants and and Catholics, you know, that, you know, we're going to hell and, and all this stuff. But understand that, that this is largely a stage of faith. That's my point. So when people persecute you in these ways, you have to understand they're, they're stuck in a stage. They haven't come out of stage four yet. And if we have begun to come out of that, we start to get, we feel this dissatisfaction with how simple we've made it. Right? We're, we have started to feel the incompleteness and the unfairness and the smallness. Of this black and white thinking, we start to realize that well, that's way too simplistic. There is something more. We start to feel restless with these self-images and the outlook that we've constructed for ourselves to, to sort of um it it is a sort of a comfort, but it's also to give structure to the instability that we felt in moving away from the group think to the individual thinking. So those comfortable little boxes that we've created for ourselves, they become flat and sterile and too small, and we start to become disillusioned with the compromises that we've made in our faith. We recognize that life is more complex than this logic and these clear distinctions. And we start pushing inward and towards something deeper and something bigger. And then we enter stage five, where we start to rejoin what was valuable in what we once knew with all of the stuff that we've learned. And this is this sort of coalesces with the turning back to the inner child. And if you do this stage well, You can recover both the inner child and the original faith and reintegrate all of it in a way that is healthy, that is fruitful, and that has learned good boundaries, that accepts other people and the experience of other people without demanding that they be a certain way. And that is what Jesus is talking about when he says we must be childlike. We can simply let ourselves be who we are, and we can let other people be who they are without demanding that they conform to our beliefs or our system or anything else. We can start to see people as the mystery that they really are and the mystery that God has sent them to us for us to experience them for a particular reason. We start to see that the, the symbols that we were given to begin with are actually accurate. They're necessarily incomplete, but just because they're incomplete doesn't mean we have to throw them away entirely. We start to see their usefulness in their expressing the mystery that's contained in paradox. They're ancient symbols for a reason because they express something that is way beyond simple logic, and we're ready to embrace that mystery, both in ourselves and in God and in other people, because we see that logic is never enough to express transcendence. So you can see that this turning back, this childlikeness that Jesus tells us we must have in order to enter the kingdom, is about recovering the inner child and reintegrating what was good in the past with what we have learned since then in a healthy. Whole. I promise we'll get further than this first section in the next show. (laughs) I'm Sonia Corbett, your Catholic Evangelista here on Sacred Healing 1230. Thank you for listening to this Sacred Healing 1230 podcast. Find out more at BibleStudyEvangelista.com because love heals.